Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today we have a returning guest and that is macro researcher Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. We covered a lot in this conversation including this paradox that is out there where everyone seems to want a recession, which is the bull case out there. We also talked about why the market, which had been a liquidity junkie, where you just bought the index for the last decade and waited on the Fed put, will finally return to a stock pickers market. We also got Jim's take on this post-pandemic economy, which includes the end of cheap labor, the end of cheap goods, and the end of cheap energy. Elsewhere, we talked about what folks are missing about the China reopening story. We also talked about that recent move from the Bank of Japan and the implications for markets, which was a bit of a macro surprise. And we covered the FTX and SBF fiasco and uh, what Jim thinks of crypto going forward and much, much more. I really enjoyed having Jim on as always, and I think you will too. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. It is so great to welcome you back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Ah, thanks for having me and happy holidays. Well, happy holidays to you. And I'm so excited to have you on again. You were such a hit the last time uh, we had you. So I want to kind of kick things off. Let's start big picture, your macro view today, and then we can start to zoom in. Yeah, so 2023 is starting off with a divergence. The market thinks that the Fed is going to possibly raise rates to 5%, and then by mid-year start cutting rates, and they'll be back down under 4 4.5% you know, by the end of the year into early 21. And we've seen some strength in the market until like the last week or so on this idea that the Fed is going to pivot. But Jerome Paul came out last week in his press conference and said, no, we're going to go to 5 and we're going to stay there all year. And then we've seen the market somewhat disappointed and it sold off around 5% or so from a week ago's levels or 7% from the highs it was right before the press conference started. And it underscores, you know, a, a theme that I've been trying to lay out in social media sarcastically. And that is, is that from 2009 to 2021, the way you invested money was you bought a broad-based ETF like the S&P 500. And then you whined and moaned and complained that the Fed wasn't doing enough to make you rich. And they did. They printed and they kept rates at zero and they forced markets higher. And we had things called the Fed put that anytime the markets got wobbly, they'd print even more money to push the markets up. And that era, I think, ended two years ago. It ended with the surge of inflation. And people are longing for that era right now to come back. When's the Fed going to cut rates back to zero and start printing? So all my crappy stocks and ETFs will go back up. They're not. They're not going to anymore. This is a different era because we're in an era of persistent inflation. I do think the inflation rate is peaked like everybody else, but I don't think it's coming anywhere near 2%. And the Fed isn't going to be pivoting anytime soon unless it gets to 2%. And then we get into this paradox where what everybody wants at this point is they want the Fed uh, they want the economy to go in the recession. They want unemployment. They want lousy earnings because that'll get the Fed to pivot. Because as I like to say, the market's a liquidity junkie. It wants cheap money. And if it has to wreck the economy to get cheap money, then wreck the economy because cheap money will take markets higher. Or a way I've also explained it was do your research, buy good companies that have good products, have strategic management that has a good outlook on where they want to go. And then hope it all goes to hell because then the Fed will pivot and your stock will go up. 
But if you buy a good company and they actually deliver a product people want, have to hire more people to deliver that product, and God forbid, see some demand and raise the price of that product, your stock's in trouble. That's how upside down we are because of 15 years of QE. We've really screwed everything up and people are still having a hard time adjusting to it. They want to go back to 2009 to 2021, cut rates to zero, print, and have everything go up. But I don't think we are anymore. That era is over. That was such an incredible outline. And there's so many things I want, I'm want. i going to follow up with you um, on during this conversation. Um, just a couple that stand out. Um, I want to hear a bit more about this paradox as it relates to you know, everyone kind of wanting a recession. Do you think, I, I would love to hear your thoughts maybe on the prospects of a recession. And if we get one, <coughs> what do you think it might look like? And do you think in that scenario, we would actually get a Fed pivot? Yeah, so... <laughs> First of all, let's start with Wall Street. The probabilities that Wall Street have that we're going to have a recession in 2023 are well over 50%, maybe even crossing 65%. And that's not just economists, that's surveys of fund managers. They expect a recession next year. They expect the 3.7% unemployment rate to go to four and a half. That's a big move for the unemployment rate to go up that, uh, that much. They expect earnings to be poor, and they expect the stock market to have a down year. Bloomberg has surveyed Wall Street strategists for 24 years. And this is the first year that they have a, an expectation of a decline in the stock market. Not 09 after the Great Recession, not 2001 or looking into 2002 after 9-11, not 2000, you know, after the tech bust. Now, now normally... If you're on Wall Street, you predict, yeah, recession, high unemployment, lousy earnings, down stock market, you're fired. You're not, that's not your job. Your job is to just be, you know, pumping sunshine all the time. Uh, so why is it that everybody is so gloomy right now? Because that's, this is the paradox. That's the bull story because that gets the Fed to pivot. And then the second half of the year, we can have a wealth effect because stock prices go up and then we can undo the recession. So a lot of people are predicting that the recession will be a, a, a soft landing. I might add, I, I like to call a soft landing is right what we call it right before the plane crashes into the runway. Uh, and that's typically been the case. Now, what do I think? I think we're probably going to have a recession, but where I'll diverge from the opinion or from the consensus is the consensus wants to see evidence of a slowdown like a week from Tuesday. And then the Fed could stop raising rates in two months. And then they could start pivoting at mid-year. I think we might see evidence of a recession in the second half of next year and give the Fed ammunition to pivot in 2024. That's not acceptable. I can't wait 18 months for cheap money. I don't want to wait 18 hours for cheap money is where the market is. So I think the market's going to get very impatient as we move into the first quarter, where's the signs of the slowdown? Because if there isn't a slowdown, the Fed's going to keep raising rates and they're going to hold them at 5% all year. So yeah, I understand the argument for recession. I just think that it's going to take longer to unfold than people do. And the type of recession we get, as I joked around with the soft landing thing, I don't think there is such a thing as a soft landing. You have a recession, you have a bad market, you have high unemployment, like it goes to five or six percent. Uh, you have earnings lose thirty percent or, or so, uh, decline thirty percent year over year. That's a recession. I think that's the only kind we get. 
uh, I don't think we get some kind of a soft landing. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, I'm going to try to phrase this question because I, I don't, I, it's just like a thought I had just kind of as you're talking. Um, it's interesting you point out like that the bull story right now is kind of, they're kind of hoping for a recession. So then the Fed pivots and then there's that wealth effect of stock market goes back up, the assets go back up. Um, but right now the Fed uh, needs to boost unemployment, I guess crush demand to tackle inflation. Um I wonder if there's almost a paradox in that, because who's going to get hurt? Who's going to lose their job? Who's going to get hurt in the recession? And will they see the upside benefits if there is a Fed pivot? Just wondering, like, have you thought about this kind of scenario or is it even relevant to bring up? Yeah. So what the Fed is hoping for is is two things. Um, First of all, there's a report called the JOLTS, the Job Openings Labor Turnover Report. If you're old enough, you'll probably remember the old newspaper wanted ads, but we don't use those anymore. So we've got this more complicated way of doing it called JOLTS. And it nominally says that there's 10.7 million open jobs in the United States. Employers are looking to fill 10.7 million slots. We have 6 million unemployed people. So that's 1.7 jobs for every unemployed person. That's that's unusually high. Usually that ratio is less than one. Uh, now, not everybody's qualified for every job, either geographically, you don't live in the right place, you don't have the right education, you don't have the right experience um, um, for those jobs. So there's, there's a bit of a mismatch. The first thing the Fed is hoping for is that um, uh, that ratio, what they're hoping is that they will bring down um, that ratio of unemployed. So, I mean, open jobs. So that a lot of open jobs will go away. No one will actually lose their job. The second thing is, and I'm going to use some technical language here for you, uh, where we've seen the layoffs, well, Goldman Sachs laid off uh, 4,000 people. The tech sector's laid off a bunch of people. Twitter's laid off half their staff. And the technical language is the Fed doesn't give a shit about those people. Lay them off. Who cares about them um, at this point? The fear is that will matriculate down to lower end jobs like minimum wage jobs or higher end minimum wage jobs. That is to remain to be seen. Now, why is it that the Fed wants unemployment? It's very simple. The thing that the Fed is looking at is wage growth. On average, the average person in the United States has gotten about a 5% raise increase uh, this year. People that have switched jobs a little higher, people that haven't switched jobs maybe a little bit lower, but on average about 5%. Simply put, if you're given, if I'm given, if we're all given a 5% raise, we could pay 5% inflation. I could pay 5% more for stuff now than I did a year ago. And that means that the inflation rate will never come back down anywhere near 2%, their target. And so they need to see wages go down and they need to see a softening of the market. They're hoping to accomplish that by reducing the number of open jobs. They're hoping to accomplish that by having a bunch of investment bankers and tech people laid off as opposed to, you know, clerks and checkout um, cashiers. Uh, And that's going to be the trick for the Fed to do. I don't know how they can pull it off, but that's what they're trying to attempt. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know how they could pull it off. Um, So like the wage part of the equation, that 5% weight um, increase that folks have seen, and that that kind of... When we talk about inflation, um, I want to hear more on your views. Um, that that's what's going to make it difficult because 
to get it back down to that 2% that um, Fed Chair Jay Powell has talked about, clearly wants. Um, talk to me about why the 2% target does not seem realistic. And what are you kind of thinking is going to be more of the new kind of normal, if you will, for um, inflation? Yeah, so uh, real quick um, on that n- number, 40% of the American, Jay Powell said this, and I think he's 100% right, and 40% of the American public doesn't own assets. They don't own stocks. They don't own crypto. They don't own real estate. They don't own a home. They have a paycheck uh, that, they, that they live paycheck to paycheck. If inflation is running at 7% and they're getting a 5% wage increase, they can perpetually buy less every year. They lose. It hurts. And as he said, we don't have a functioning economy if that's the case. And I completely agree with him. Um, the other 60% whines and complains that he's too complain- worried about inflation because their stock prices go down. Um, they can afford if everything at the grocery store goes up 7% and they get a 5% wage increase because they own a home, they own a, a stock portfolio, they have a bunch of crypto that's lost 70%, but they're surviving on that as well too. So that's really where his focus is. And I agree, that's where his focus sh- should be as on those 40% even though he might be risking some of their jobs to get that inflation rate down. Now, where I criticize the Fed is you're two years too late. You should have started on this late 20, late 19, early 2020. You know, you let the fire go. You were an arsonist back then, and now you're trying to put out your own fire. But at least you're trying to put out your own fire right now. Uh, but you let it start in the first place. That's my what where my criticism um, of the Fed goes. Now, why won't we get to 2%? I've been arguing that this is a post-pandemic economy. Every pandemic in human history produces a major change in human activity. This one is no different. And the day before we're recording, we might've gotten the ultimate validation of how this pandemic has permanently changed human activity. And that comes from the Metropolitan Transit Authority, the MTA in New York City. They are, they are proposing to cut service on Monday and Friday to increase service on the weekend. Because if you look at uh, uh, subway traffic, if you look at Long Island Railroad traffic, um, if you look at Metro North traffic, that's from Connecticut into Manhattan, what you'll see is that Saturday and Sunday service is about 100% of pre-pandemic levels. People travel on the weekends. They enjoy themselves. They do stuff. On Monday through Friday, Traffic is around 60% of what it was pre-pandemic, but Monday and Friday is significantly lower than Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday because the average person works three days a week in the office and two days a week at home. That's why Monday and Friday are lower. New York City is desperate to get everybody back to the office five days a week. That's their tax revenue. That's what all those businesses need. They need you and me and everybody else Monday through Friday in the office. That's why Eric Adams, the mayor, has been screaming, get out of your pajamas and get back down to the office. It's literally what he said a couple of months ago. Well, if the MTA, if the subway system is giving up on the idea that a five-day work week is going to be reality, then it's permanently done. That is a result of the pandemic. No more five-day in the office. We are now a hybrid to fully remote workforce for the people that can do that. Of course, you know, policemen, surgeons, waitresses, 
construction workers, they still have to go to a job location. But the rest of us that work in offices, we can do that remotely or at least in a hybrid format. So there's one major change. That is leading to a giant shift in the workforce attitude. Look at Twitter. Elon Musk lays off half of Twitter. He then says, you know, you can work remotely, but you can't do it here. And two weeks later, what does he announce? So many people said, fine, Elon, I quit. That he said, okay, okay, I give. There will be some kind of hybrid work. Because he was going to have, he laid off half the workforce and the other half was going to quit. Because who did he keep? He kept the best workers and they know they can go out and get another job somewhere else. And they don't want to be in the office five days a week. So labor has the upper hand. So the era of cheap labor is over. Cheap goods, China is a disaster right now. They have got basically problems with their economy, problems with zero COVID. Then they got they had protests. And believe me, in China, to see protests like we saw last month over zero COVID, those people are risking their life. That is not like the United States or Europe where you can protest and you can go home. There are people now, it's been widely documented that the that the um, organizers of some of the protests in China in November have disappeared. They're gone. No one has seen them. That doesn't happen to protesters in the United States or Europe. It does there. So when you see that kind of protest in China, that tells you there is a tremendous amount of frustration among the public in that country right now. So then they got rid of zero COVID. And what did they do? They also said, well, since we don't got rid of zero COVID, we're going to get rid of testing. So what is the anecdotal evidence out of China? For three years, they've locked down their economy and created a mess. They never got herd immunity from COVID. And now that they're basically opening up, the number of COVID cases is spiking. It did in the United States and Europe in 20 and 21. And we all got it. We all maybe got it more than once like I did. And we've all got herd immunity. They're just getting it now. And now they're not reporting it. So what's happened since they've gotten rid of zero COVID? If you look at subway system traffic in Beijing and Shanghai, it's lower now than it was when they had zero COVID. Now everybody's scared to death. They were frustrated they weren't allowed to leave their home during zero COVID. Now they're scared to death to leave their home because of zero COVID. The supply chain, one third of all container boxes that are put on, an, on a cargo, on a container ship and shipped to the United States come from China. China is an unreliable partner right now and will remain that way for several months uh, before they finally kind of get things squared away and maybe start reopening in the second half of the year. Now, the problem is going to be when that happens, we'll probably be going into a slowdown. And so they'll be ready to ship stuff to us and we'll be saying, we don't want it. We're, we're on the way into a recession. So the era of cheap goods is over. And then cheap energy, the largest energy producer in the, in the world, energy, so include natural gas, is Russia. China, uh, Europe, especially Germany, relied on cheap energy to basically allow them to be quasi-socialists and everything else. They, why did they even have a manufacturing base in Germany? Because they got all this cheap natural gas from Europe because in manufacturing, most important input is not labor, how much I pay my workers. It's energy. It takes a lot of energy in Stuttgart to make a Mercedes. And they got, they got away with 
all of their high wages and all of their work rules and four day weeks in year in France and uh, 35 hour weeks in France and the like, because they got cheap natural gas and energy from Russia. That's gone. And now they're going to have to pay much, much higher rates for energy. So when you say when post COVID, I see the end of cheap labor, the end of the five day work week in the office hybrid is now the thing, the end of cheap goods, China is an unreliable partner and it's going to be that way. And you can't trust them to deliver because they've got all kinds of problems. And the end of cheap energy. Yeah, the inflation rate shouldn't be 9% and it's 7.1 on its way down. But I think it stops at four. I don't think it stops at two. And that is a huge difference. The Fed defines neutral inflation, a uh, neutral funds rate as half a percent above the inflation rate. So if inflation stops at four, Neutral's four and a half. We just got the four and a half last week. The Fed hasn't spent one day being tight. They just now got back to neutral. And there, therefore, there won't be any rate cuts, none. And if the inflation stays sticky at four, they might go to five or six in order to try and make an attempt at getting it back down to two. So yeah, that's the, the short order why I think inflation is going to stay high, why I think it matters. Because Interest rates are going to come down then at that point. They still might go up. And for a market desperate for a Fed pivot, you might not get that pivot. Again, I love having you on the show because you do such an amazing job of explaining things. And um, yeah, the end of cheap labor, end of cheap goods, end of cheap uh, energy. Um, okay, so on the inflation part, um, and why the Fed won't be able to get to 2%, sounds like 4% is kind of what you're thinking about. Um, okay, is there any path to 2% whatsoever, or does the math just not work out? And if there isn't a path to 2%, do you think the Fed will ever come around and say, you know, 4% might be the best we can do? Um, kind of, what do you yes. think? So there is a path to 2%, and that is kill the economy, kill it and kill demand, and everybody gets fired, and we stop buying stuff, and you get 2% inflation, but that's not the way you want to do it, and it only lasts until the economy recovers and then inflation um, goes back up. Is there a path to kind of equilibrium 2% like we had from 2009 to 2021? Yeah, if we restructure the economy, we need to find new sources of cheap labor. We need to find new sources of cheap energy. I have an idea where they might be found, maybe Eagle Forth in Texas, maybe the Bakken in North Dakota, but we don't want to hand out permits to you know, drill off the coast of Gulf of Mexico or, or California or expand production in those areas because of the green movement. Uh, you know, can we find, um, um, you know, uh, that's cheap energy. Can we find cheap goods? Sure. If we diversify outside of China, um, you know, Apple is a good example of this. They had protests on the floor of uh, I, the Foxconn factory where they make the iPhone 14. 40 people were hurt. There's blood spilled all over the floor where they make the iPhone 14. Tim Cook has not said word one about this. And when he's been asked about it, he's avoided the question. But what are they doing instead? They're trying as fast as they can to get their production out of China. They want to triple their iPhone production in India in three years. Now, it'll still be a very small percentage because it's not so easy to leave China, but they're trying to get out. So, yes, we could eventually diversify away from China and find other sources of uh, of cheap goods uh, and cheap labor. Once we've done restructuring the whole jobs market, we could maybe get there. That's trillions of dollars and that's many, many years. Uh, 
So yeah, no, we're not at a permanently high level of 4% inflation forever, but we can be there for several years before we eventually see it start to settle down. And that requires an investment in trying to find new technologies, trying to find new sources of labor, trying to find new sources of energy, and maybe more importantly, an, act, an admission that we need to do that. There isn't an admission that we need to do that. When the price of crude oil was spiking and producers of energy in the United States said, we could produce it in Texas, we could produce it in North Carolina, the administration immediately sent President Biden to Saudi Arabia to fist bump with MBS, the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, to try and get an oil deal, which he didn't. And they tried to reduce sanctions and restrictions on Venezuela to try and get an oil deal, which they couldn't. But they weren't ready to admit the only place we're going to find that energy, just as one example, is Texas, North Dakota, and Canada. That's where it is. There is actually enough there, but we're not ready to go there yet. We would rather let Venezuela do it. We would rather let Saudi Arabia do it. In other words, the net carbon effect on the planet is zero. They're going to produce it as opposed to we're producing it, but it's going to get produced. We might as well produce it. We could control the, the amount of clean regulations and how it's being done. And, you know, Venezuela still is an ecological disaster the way that they produce energy. But it's Venezuela. It's not here. And we just want it to be produced over there and shipped over here. And then we could just complain about um, you know, global warming. But ultimately, it's going to get done. It's just where. It's, I actually think it's better being done here and controlled as opposed to being done over there and not controlled. Yeah, no, it kind of just kind of begs the question. Like, it seems like common sense. If you can do it here and do it safely here, uh, Texas, North Dakota, and our neighbor to the north in Canada, um, wh- I just kind of wonder, like, why? Why don't we? Why don't we just get back to common sense? Is this like the, it's just ESG movement, like more green wishing from folks? Like, what? what is kind of, what do you think is driving this? It just doesn't seem like those are the best it, it's, friends it's folks political. to go interact with. I was going to say it's political. I mean, you know, that, uh, you know, no one is against clean energy. No one is against clean energy. And, you know, and then and it's also a little bit of a uh, a misconception um, when people think about oil production. We all still have images of an oil derrick with oil shooting up over the top. That famous picture that we all think about. That picture was taken over 100 years ago. If you've ever had the fortune of going to an oil field or an oil platform, and I've had the fortune to go to one or two of them, um, those things are hospital clean. They're run by people with degrees from MIT. Uh, They are very, very efficient. Oil's $100 a barrel, $80 a barrel. They have no intention of spilling it all over the floor. That's money that they're spilling all over the floor. There's no real there's no real ecological danger for it being done. Yeah, the tailpipe is is, is an issue, um, but you know we still have we still have ways that we can work on that. Uh, people still want you know. So the, the the fix there is you know another great example of this is the misconceptions is EV electric vehicles. Oh, it's good for the environment. Actually, it's not. It's actually worse for the environment. The amount of heavy metals that are used and lithium that's used in a battery and the mining that takes place in places like Africa to get it actually winds up making it very, very messy. Yeah, maybe there isn't poisonous air coming out of the tailpipe 
in your garage uh, as you back out of your garage, but that poisonous uh, gas is being produced at an electric plant 15 miles away, that's charging your car. It's still being done. It's just not being done in front of you. So there's a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard thing. You know, we want oil, but we don't want it here. We want it in Venezuela. We, you know, I want to be able to recharge my EV, but I don't want that poisonous gas in my on my driveway. I want it over there so I could just, you know, charge in here. So there's a lot of that kind of attitude. I think if we ever changed the attitude that said, look, we have to produce a certain amount of carbon to have an economy. And then we should be talking about how to produce, how to reduce the amount of carbon instead of eliminate the amount of carbon, instead of putting uh, barriers on it. But that's not the way that we think about this kind of stuff. And that's why we, we have these screwed up energy policies that we have, and we always constantly have energy problems. Yeah, probably a good idea to get back to just first principles uh, thinking as relates to energy. Um, Jim, I want to ask you again about China, because you were given just a wealth of information of like, I know it sounds like it's something you've been following. You even cited their own version of like the subway data, which I found to be fascinating, just the ridership there. What do you think folks are missing on the China reopening story? I... I think there's two things that they're missing. One uh, is when the Chinese protests came, what the Chinese were doing was they were holding up, and I'm holding up one right now, a white piece of paper. And what that was, what that meant, and it's called the white paper revolution. And what they were doing was they were protesting censorship and they were protesting the lack of information in detail. They were not produced, they were not complaining Please stop zero COVID so I can go back to making iPhones. They were they were calling for Xi to resign. They were calling for the CCB, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to be overturned. And there were so many of them doing it, it was very hard for an authoritarian government to rein them in. So I think the first thing people have to that they were missing was they weren't complaining, just stop with the zero COVID so I could go back to work. It was much bigger than that, and it still exists. The second thing I think that they're missing is, oh, China's going to reopen. And that means that the doors are going to fly open of everybody's home and they're going to run out and they're going to celebrate that they can go back and shop and they could go back to work and they could go back and have dinner with their friends. They're afraid to. They're afraid to because the government has not been forthcoming about the extent of COVID, the amount of cases that they have, the amount of deaths that they have, and people are fearful. Now, you could say, like I said before, oh, but eventually they'll get to herd immunity and eventually they'll get over it and eventually they'll get back to work. Yeah, I don't think eventually is a couple of weeks. I think eventually is many months is what, and it, like I said, maybe by the second half of the year, they will finally get past their fear of COVID that they have right now. Because remember, for three years, they were told COVID is the Black Death or something similar to that, which is why they had to have zero, they had to have lockdowns in China. And let me explain to people what a lockdown in China is. Most people in China live in apartment buildings. If one person tests positive in your apartment building, everybody is locked in the apartment. And what does that mean? Most apartment buildings in China are not like in the West. There's not some grand entrance with marble and you know, uh, velvet couches and three banks of elevators. It's a steel door that you walk in. It might look like the door that you go to throw out your trash, 
in an apartment building in the West. They actually put a metal bar over that door and weld it to that door and you can't get out. What do you do about food? The government will bring you bags of food, but sometimes they don't and then you're on a diet. What happens if you have like a plumbing problem? Well, you better be careful because you're gonna have a sanitary problem as well. It's a terrible existence. If you're shopping, there was a famous example of this in September in Beijing and in, a, in an Ikea, thousand people in an Ikea. There's government officials there walking around in hazmat suits and they grab people nicely and they stick a swab in your nose and they see if you test positive. If you do, they chain the doors of the whole Ikea and a thousand people are stuck in that, in that Ikea for days on end until everybody tests positive. They'll bring you food, but usually they don't. It's horrible. So that when, when, when they said somebody tested positive, you saw people knocking over old people, running over children to get out before they, 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 they locked the doors. That's what zero COVID was like. And now they're down. So people were told this was the black death. So now we're going to say, nope, nope, nope. Okay, now it's just the flu. You could go back to work. No problem. It's just the flu. You could go back to the grocery store. Uh, but everybody knows that the hospitals are being overrun. And they're very, very afraid right now. The Chinese economy is the weakest it's been, other than the lockdowns of 2020, in at least 50 years of data. And it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. And let me come back to my original statistic. Why do we care? One third of all exported items to the United States come from China. And that China used to be a reliable producer of stuff. They are not right now. They might get to that place many months or a year into the future or so, but they are not now. They are an unreliable partner and it's going to maintain, it's going to continue to be a problem for our economy and everybody's economy because they're the factory of the world as we move forward. Yeah. Um, that one third of exports coming from them and a factor of the world, as you put it, um, really um, fascinating um, analysis that you put forth there too. And it's, it's, you're helping all of us kind of better understand the world around us and um, the forces at play. I want to shift gears and bring up another topic because I saw a Twitter thread of yours. And by the way, everyone go follow um, Jim on Twitter at Bianca Research because you have some great content. And this one was about um, Japan. I think this was a bit of a macro surprise for folks, but uh, at the recent Bank of Japan meeting um, and it's uh, implications for markets. I'll let you explain it, but it sounds like they it has to do with the trading in JGBs um, and maybe the range. I'll let you explain it because you're the expert. I'm not. So I'll just um, help us understand okay. what this means. So JGB stands for Japanese government bond. That's what that means. <clears throat> and since 2016, the Japanese have had a, a target of zero on their 10-year yield. It's called yield curve control. And so it was a target of zero. They And how do they do that? The Bank of Japan, their central bank, their equivalent to the Fed, will print money to buy or sell an unlimited amount of 10-year notes to target its yield to zero. Um, and they had initially had a range of zero plus or minus 10 basis points. Then in 2019, they plus or minus 20 basis points. In 2021, plus or minus 25 basis points. So what that means is that the yield can creep up to the upper end of their channel. Last night, they expanded it again from 25 basis points to 50. And interest rates went up a lot in Japan to 50 basis points. So um, BOJ Governor, Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda came out in a press conference last night 
and said, no, this is a technical adjustment. And the reason we're doing this is because there's financial stability concerns in China. Okay, what does that mean in English? What that means is that interest rates in China have been straining at the upper end of where the Bank of Japan will hold them. The Bank of Japan targets the 10-year note, but the nine-year note, the eight-year note, the 11-year note, the 12-year note have been going above the target. So their yield curve looks like this. You know, It's been going up and then it goes back down to their target right for just the 10-year and then 11, 12-year keeps going up and it's well over 1% when you get out to 20 years. So that's what this financial stability concerns was. The entire market is moving higher without them. So they expanded the range to let interest rates move up and they said it's just a technical adjustment. Okay, what, what, why are they having to do this technical adjustment? It's the same story that we have in every other country. Their inflation rate's at a 30-year high. It's 3.7%. Um, uh, it's not 7 like it is in the United States, but 3.7% is a 30-year high, and it's expected to keep going higher. Their, their core inflation rate is over 2. Japan is the country that we think of when you hear the word deflation, their inflation rate, their core inflation rate is above two. And Kuroda said yesterday it might stay above two to the end of 23. All of a sudden, Japan has an inflation problem. The, the country that defined the word deflation. And so what I said, what I said in that Twitter thread, and what I'm trying to explain here is that if Japan is now being forced to expand their range, to let their interest rates go up because their markets are straining with rates too low because they've been manipulated too low because they've got an inflation problem. The, def the country that defines the def deflation has an inflation problem. How's the Fed going to pivot? How's the ECB going to pivot? How are we ever going to get lower interest rates across the rest of the developed world, which is six which has 7% inflation, six core in the United States, over 10% in Europe because of high energy prices. Japan is underscoring there is a developed world inflation problem worldwide. It isn't going away anytime soon. This idea that, oh, inflation is going to come back down to 2%, the Fed's going to pivot, the stock market's going to take off. It got a body blow to that because the country that you most associate with no inflation actually has inflation and actually has to see their interest rates go up, that their central bank through unlimited printing can't even hold their interest rates in line. So they have to expand the target to let them go up. And that's what happened last night. You saw one of the biggest rises in daily rises in interest rates in Japan in decades after they announced the expansion of that target. Their, their interest rates went up by almost 20 basis points, which is huge. You Like I said, the biggest rise in decades in Japan. So the takeaway from this, Japan has an inflation problem now, too. The country that you associate with deflation. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for everybody else? We, we also have an inflation problem that's going to be a lot harder to get rid of than we initially thought. Yeah, it's so interesting just like understand like how interconnected um, everything is in the world. And you, you're right, everyone associated them with, with deflation now. They have an inflation problem. What are some of the maybe you kind of alluded to it, but like what are some of the other potential impacts that investors should be thinking of based on this news out of the BOJ? Anything that they that they should think about or have on their radar screens? 
Well, you know, there there's two things that came out of the BOJ uh, announcement that they expanded their their target their 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 range and interest rates went up. Their stock market struggled. Our stock market, you know, struggled off that. Interest rates went up there. Interest rates went up here. Interestingly, um, Japanese bank stocks took off and just had a mammothly high up day. But let me point out to people, there was a stock market crash in 1987, over 35 years ago. The Jap, you know, in October of 87, when the, the S&P fell 22% a day. The Japanese bank stock index is below that level from 35 years ago. That's how terrible those investments have been for the last almost four decades. So they're and one of the reasons is because their interest rates have been shoved to negative and their interest rates have been uh, staying there. So you saw their bank stocks take off. But finally, I think if the other thing people need to think about, too, is this whole idea of remember I said, from 2009 to 2021, you buy spiders and then you whine that the Fed's not doing enough to print money, to make the stock market go up. Where did that originate? That originated in Japan 20 years ago. And so Japan was the first one in with easy money. They might be the last one out with easy money. And that might have started yesterday. So it also underscores this era of don't worry when the economy goes bad the Fed will just cut rates to zero. Uh, they will print like crazy and the stock market will moon. Um, no, that is, an, that is a previous era. We're not in that era anymore because we have inflation. And because we have inflation, that has changed the game. You have to look to the models of the 70s, early 80s to see where we're going to go. And one of the things I've argued is I think that this has changed the game in that it has now made it a stock picker's market. It's no longer the case of, oh, I think this is going to be bullish for the banks, so buy the bank uh, ETF. Or I think that energy prices might go up if China does reopen in the second half of the year because they'll consume more uh, gas, uh, they'll consume more gasoline, more crude oil. So buy XLE, which is the energy ETF. It might be a case of which banks do you buy, which energy companies do you buy, because not all of them need to be bought. You need to go through them company by company, kind of the way that professional investors did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we got away from that because we got into the era of cheap money where it was just, just buy the S&P 500. Yeah. That's all you needed to do. Uh, you didn't need to be very discriminating about what, or maybe you bought small cap stocks or you bought technology stocks, but you didn't need to discriminate You know the difference between Skype and Zoom or between Microsoft and Apple. You know It was just buy them, buy the fangs. But I think we're coming to an era where stock picking is going to rotate back in the favor. And all of my old boomer stock friends are say, yes, yes, yes. It's an era of stock picking. And, and I like to say, but the problem is you haven't had to do it for 20 years. And I don't know if we have the skill sets out there to really do it. Everybody thinks they have the skill set to do it. I'm not going to pretend that I do. I just want to see people prove that they could actually pick stocks because it, it's a skill set that has been not used in decades. And it's probably going to have to rotate back in the favor. Doesn't mean no one can do it. It's just that it's going to take, you know, there's going to be, you pull muscles like you do in the first day that you go out and you start exercising again. And it's going to take a relearning process and we'll do it over time, but I don't think we're going to do it seamlessly. I think you're going to see people probably picking up, you know, 
like the the Peter Lynch books and, and whatnot, kind of going back and relearning uh, the art of uh, stock picking. It's kind of funny. George was, Noble, George yes, Noble, who George worked Noble. for Peter. Yeah, he worked for Peter Lynch. I mean, you know, he, you know, he's one of the few guys that I would say, you know, has the ability to make this transition fairly quickly, mm. uh, because. George and I know George because people thought he was a dinosaur in 2020 that he had a skill set nobody needed. Well, now he's got a skill set everybody yeah. needs. You know, that's the cycle has changed. I'm going to have to ask him on this podcast because I follow him on Twitter and he does some great uh, Twitter spaces as well. And um, yeah, it was interesting because I was kind of smiling because I was going to ask you like, wait, I was going to turn back to domestic markets because you had mentioned at the top like 2009 to 2021. It was like the indexing by whatever S&P 500 index. Um, Fed policies, Fed put, um, it goes up and up, and that's obviously changed. So I guess as it relates to investing and assets, like, is there anything that is on your radar that is interesting to you that you like, and what are the things that maybe you don't like? Um, at this point, I think what's becoming interesting is fixed income, and fixed income is becoming interesting for the first time because there's actually that second word applies income. There's actually a yield again on fixed income. We have gone through in 2021, 2022, especially one of the worst stretches for fixed income in its history. And that's because we started with essentially a zero yield and we saw interest rates go up. That means bond prices go down. And the problem was you had no offset of, a, of an income, you know, a yield and interest rates to offset it. When we had the bond bear market in the 80s, you never really saw terrible losses out of bonds because you owned a bond that was yielding you 8%. You were getting 8% on your money and it went down nine. So you net lost 1% on your money. Okay, you lost, but it's not terrible. But when 2022, you started with zero or 1% on your income and it went down 11 and you lost 10% of your money. You go, man, that's like, investing in the stock market kind of losses. But now that we've gotten a yield again, that cushion is there. So even if interest rates trend higher, which I have suggested that they will, I'm going to start with a 4% coupon. So I can lose 4% of my price, gain a 4% coupon and wind up with a zero total return. That's the way investing in bonds used to be in the 80s and the 70s and into the early 90s. And it's coming back. So I think bonds are an interesting place. It might be a little early, I think, yet, because I do think that there might be higher yields that may more than offset the coupon. But we're getting close. We're getting really close um, when it comes to bonds. On the equity front, you know, if we're going to have a period of high inflation, and I said, you know, it's not going to be 4% forever, we have to restructure. That means we're going to have to buy companies that no one looked at two years ago. Industrial companies, manufacturing companies, basic material um, companies, logistics companies. It's no longer that a diversified portfolio is cloud, um, software, and communications. Diversified portfolio might now be manufacturing companies, industrial companies, basic material companies. Those type of value kind of companies because that's who's going to lead, energy companies would be in that list as well too. That's who's going to lead the change in the economy going forward from here. Um, yes, the Apples of the world, the Microsofts of the world 
will still have a very large market cap because of their importance to everybody, but their growth rates might not justify and the price, the, you know, the, the valuations, you might not see big gains out of those companies anymore. You won't see huge any more huge losses. You're already taking huge losses in a lot of those companies right now. But I do think that the shift towards value companies and that restructuring of the economy is underway. Yeah. Um, I want to just do a quick follow on to, you know, fixed income becoming interesting to you. Um, do you have a preference on like where within the fixed income universe you want to be? Like in terms of like, you know, two or 10 or third, like where do you want, where within that universe do you, is interesting to you? So two things. Um, what I don't want to be involved with yet is credit. So corporate bonds or high yield bonds, because like I said earlier, I think that, you know, there's there's going to be a downturn in the economy. I agree with the consensus, but where I differ with the consensus is it's later on. It's later. It's off in the second half of the year into 24. It's not in the first half of the year. Um, a downturn in the economy is not uh, good for credit. You know, companies struggle to pay back their interest payments. They default. You don't want to be associated with them. I think you want to be a, more in high quality bonds, government bonds. Um, you know, re you remember one thing about the government, um, you know, U.S. Treasury securities, you will get paid back. They might have to print the money to pay you back and it might be in devalued dollars, but they're not going to default on you. Um, so those high interest rates are very, are very interesting. If I was to get a little nuanced with that, um, the shape of the yield curve, I think, is, is inverted. And what that means is short-term interest rates are above long-term interest rates. Now, why would that be? Because the Fed is going to stay hawkish on, in, on inflation, and so short-term interest rates aren't going to come down. Long-term interest rates are going to stay are low because everybody's expecting a recession, thus an inverted curve. I think that that yield curve will will become less inverted and maybe uninvert in market parlance that the curve will steepen. Um, how do you play that? Um, you play that with a barbell strategy in, as opposed to a bulleted strategy. What does that mean for people that are steeped in bonds? I could buy a five-year note with an average duration of about four, which is what the five-year note has right now. Or I could buy some treasury bills and a 10-year note with an average duration of four. Same duration, same amount of interest rate risk. That's what duration is. Same amount of interest rate risk. The difference is owning bills in 10 years with a duration of four, if the yield curve steepens, that will outperform owning a five-year with the duration of four. So a barbell strategy will actually outperform if the curve steepens. Now, the curve could steepen in one of two ways. The way I think it will steepen is this disappointment. Where's the slowdown? Where's the pivot? Inflation is still the concern. Ten-year notes go up in yield, and the curve un gets less invert, steepens. Or maybe if I'm wrong, and there is really is a slowdown, the two-year note falls. Okay, now the Fed could cut rates. I was wrong. There is going to be a pivot in the middle of the year. The Fed's going to cut rates. That will steepen the curve as well. So I like the barbell strategy quite a bit. Yeah, I think that the curve could probably go a little bit more inverted. It's minus 80 basis points, eight-tenths of a percent between the 10-year and the two-year. Maybe it goes to minus one. But keep in mind, it started at 300 basis points, and it got to minus 80. So it is 
flattened to inverted by 380 basis points. Maybe there's 20 to 30 or 40 basis points left in that move. 90% of that curve steep flattening move, curve inverted move is over. There might, there might be another 10% to go, if even that. And then I think you get the curve steepening. So that's how I'd play it. That's kind of a kind of a bond geeky kind of answer for people on um, how, you know, I would approach the, the market right now. Got it. Um, I have another question because a lot of folks who watch this, they do, they they tend to be pretty curious about gold. And especially like if we are heading into a recession and inflation remains sticky as well. What are your thoughts on gold? So what is gold supposed to, in for the crypto crowd, because I know we we're talking to a big crypto crowd, <laughs> I'm going to explain gold, and it's going to sound like I'm explaining Bitcoin. Um, gold is traditionally the way that if you get worried about the financial system, too much inflation, deflation, financial crisis, political instability, name your pay, all of the above. What do I do with my money in that kind of environment? Get it out of the financial system. How do you do that? You know, prior to 2009, 2010 with Bitcoin, you'd do it with gold. Um, that was the way you'd get your money away from the financial system. Uh, and the problem that gold now, like I said, you've got the competition of, of cryptocurrency is another one that you could use as well, too. The problem with gold, though, is along the way, people said, well, how do I buy gold? And I'm speaking conceptually. Well, you got to go buy bars of gold or you got to buy sacks of coins and you got to bury them in your backyard. Are you kidding me? That's hard. I don't know how to do that. That's not an investment. Why don't you list an ETF on the New York Stock Exchange or list some futures that I can buy or a gold fund that I can buy? So what we did to gold is we financialized it. We turned it into another fiat currency. I can't tell you how many people I've met that say, man, I'm really worried about the financial system. Okay, what are you doing about it? I own GLD. GLD is the gold ETF that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So you think the financial system's in peril. Yes. And you think that owning a piece of paper on the New York Stock Exchange is going to protect you from that? It might be backed by gold, but they'll ban that piece of paper or there'll be problems with that. You have to bury coins in your backyard. Oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a prepper. I'm not going to go that route or something like that. Well, we, finan we so financialized gold, we've turned it into another fiat. And so it trades like a fiat. When the dollar goes up, gold struggles. When the dollar goes down, gold rallies. It's no different than the euro um, at this point. So that's the frustration that I've had with gold or to turn it around. Everything that's happened in 2022 is what Peter Schiff has prayed for his whole life. I love Peter. And that's why I, I like to uh, tease him. You know, the economy is struggling. We've got inflation. We've got financial crisis. We've got war. We've got everything you've hoped for if you're a gold investor, why isn't gold going up? Because we've so financialized it, we've turned it into another fiat currency. And so when all that stuff happens, everybody says, I don't know what's going on. I'll of all the fiats, I'll hide in the dollar because it's the safest of the fiats. And the dollar goes up and gold being another fiat struggles just like the yen and the euro. So that's where I think the problem is with gold. If we ever got back to our knitting, that gold is a way. Look, if you want to get your money out of the financial system, you don't do it by buying a share on the New York Stock Exchange. You bury it in your backyard. Now, you may not like that because you sound like a prepper, like I said, um, and you don't want to do that. But then you're not getting your money out of the financial system. Now, of course, the other problem gold has is since 2010, 
It's got another way to get your money out of the financial system, and that's cryptocurrencies, um, primarily Bitcoin, Ethereum as well, too. But that's the other competition that gold has. So that if things get ugly and hairy and messy, um, okay, go buy crypto. Why would I waste my time with gold? So that's where I think gold has really been struggling right now is we've, too, we've turned it into another fiat. Oh, man, I own GLD, which is why I'm kind of laughing. I'm like, what? I, I hear exactly well, it, what you're saying, yeah, though, and look, I kind of regret it, to be honest. <laughs> if yeah. you want to own GLD because you think the price is going up, that's a very efficient way to do it. If you want to own GLD because you think, you know, that's why the old Swiss, <laughs> you know, the Swiss, the private Swiss banks are big gold buyers. Why are they big gold buyers? Because Europe has got an unsavory history where certain classes of people that have wealth, put their money in a Swiss bank, and they say, someday I might have to disappear for a few months, mm. and I might reemerge in Argentina or Brazil or Indonesia, and I will make a phone call to your bank, and you will send me money. And in the meantime, while I disappeared and then reappear, um, the world will be a very ugly, unsavory place. And that's why uh, you know, Swiss private Swiss banks like to own a lot of gold. That's the history of gold. But when you own GLD... Look, I've owned GLD too because I looked at the charts and I said it's going to go up. That's an efficient way to do it. But if you own GLD because you think the world's going to hit the fan, so is the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, let's call it what it is. And then all of a sudden, GLD is a problem. But that's what I mean by we've turned it into a fiat. Exactly. Because it's not like I it. own gold. It's not my bar of gold, you know, at that point. Yeah. Right. But um, at least, at least GLD. At least, you know, if, as long as I'm putting on my uh, my tinfoil hat, at least GLD has gold. You know, there's always those <laughs> yeah. theories that, you know, that in the, you know, there's a vault in the in central London that's owned by HSBC. And in that vault, there's supposed to be bars of gold that are basically backed. You know, it's like a stable coin, GLD. It's backed one for one for a bar of gold in the vault. And, so, and people have forever whispered and rumored that there's not enough gold in the vault or the vault or the gold doesn't even exist. Um, or something. And a quick antidote for those, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, the rumors got so hot. This is before stable coins, of course, before Tether, that GLD was the same thing like Tether. It, it's not backed by anything. It's not backed by enough things. <clears throat> so Bob Pisani of CNBC does this thing on, on, on uh, CNBC where they put them in a, they put them in a, uh, in a van and they put a hood on him and they drive him in circles for 15 minutes. So he's all confused. And they take him and his cameraman into the vault at HSBC. And they then they show pictures of pallets of gold. And they go, see, there's gold here. We don't know where it is. That's why they drove us in circles. But it exists. And he holds up a bar of gold. And then of all the places, zero hedge, zeroes in on the bar of gold. There's a serial number on the bar of gold. Then they go to the GLD website. That serial number is not on the GLD website. And GLD has to come out and say, well, 90% of the gold in that vault is owned by us, but he happened to pick up one of the 5% that wasn't owned by us. So all of a sudden, the conspiracy theories, see, I told you, it's like Tether. It does. There's no backing of this thing. And so they've been dealing with this this whole Tether thing. This is all not new. We've been doing this with GLD for 15 years okay. uh, as, as well. So you think stuff is new in the crypto space. There's a parallel to it in the TradFi space almost everywhere. I'm going to go look the, up that video with uh, Bob Pisani now. Okay. Um, yeah. Since you brought it up... <laughs> Um, without okay, 
let's talk about FTX and SBF. I'm sure you are so Ugh. tired of it at this point, but maybe like, what are the bigger implications of this? Like, what are you thinking about? <clears throat> what is the purpose of crypto? Why do we, why am I a fan of crypto? Why are you a fan of crypto? And it is the prospects of, and I want to, and I want to, you know, I don't want to go maxi here and go Bitcoin versus ETH. I want to go crypto. Uh, and I want to say it is a, the potential of sound money and a new financial system. And I think that they need to go together. Another quick uh, little word. I, I have the book here somewhere. Um, Ed Chancellor just wrote a new book called The Price of Time, where he, tra where he traces 5,000 years of the history of money. And what's interesting in, about the book is it turns out, why do we use the word yield um, for interest rates? It turns out that if you go back to the origins of society, you know, in the fertile cradle of Mesopotamia 8,000 years ago, we invented banking before we even invented currencies. And that the original invention of banking was, I would give you a bushel of corn and you would give me back the bushel of corn and some seeds. That was my yield. I would give you my cow to use. You would give me my cow back plus a calf. That was the yield. And when we started to realize that was all difficult. So we invented medians of exchange money to make it easier to pay interest. So we actually invented banking and interest rates and lending first. And then we invented money second. And I always thought about that when it comes to crypto. Maybe we did this backwards. We should have invented DeFi first. And then, okay, now that we've invented this cool thing called DeFi, how do we make it more efficient? Then we invent Bitcoin to satisfy the need for Bitcoin, for DeFi, but we, we did that backwards. And I think that part of doing that backwards has led to too much scamming and too much um, uh, you know, uh, out of control casino attitudes um, about a lot of that stuff. So I am a big fan of cryptocurrencies, but I also think that you need two things. You need a store of value, which Bitcoin is, medium exchange, which Bitcoin is, and you need a financial system to go with it, and that is DeFi or maybe Sachs on the on the blockchain uh, or the Bitcoin blockchain. Sure, okay, fine. If you want to, if you want to try and do something along those lines, now the Taproot is up and running. That's fine too. But get it going, or maybe the Lightning Network can be expanded into something more that can approximate, um, you know, uh, with a lending and borrowing protocol and stuff. Okay, fine. But you need all of that, and so. The problem is we got away from that. We turned it, what we did was we took cryptocurrency and the promise of the new financial system, we turned it into Vegas. And we all started speculating like crazy on it. And we then started saying, you know, it's easier to speculate when you're actually in a casino. And the casino are these centralized exchanges. And then they all started to blow up in the wake of, um, in the wake of the Luna debacle. So then we had, you know, uh, 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 Voyager blow up, BlockFi blow up, then eventually FT FTX blew up. And now we're even starting to worry about Binance. Coinbase, we're not worried about Coinbase, but stock's down 90%. And so I think if there's anything we need to learn from this is that maybe really the centralized exchanges have a very small role to play. They're an on-ramp and an off-ramp. That's all they are. And that really, we got to start thinking about if you want decentralized hard money, we need a decentralized financial system, DeFi. If you don't like the system that ETH is putting together, 
put together a different decentralized financial system. But if you think all we need is Bitcoin and then we've got sound money, but then Jamie Dimon can tell me what to do with it or Jay Powell can tell me what to do with it. We haven't accomplished anything. We need both of those together. Neither one of them survives without the other. Uh, a cryptocurrency of sound money and a, dis and a financial system to go with it. Uh, we need them both together. And I think what we're finding is they're not compatible with the current system. CFI, centralized exchanges, is the current system. That's blowing up left and right. That system is inherently unstable. The banking system is inherently unstable, a fractional reserve banking system. That's why you need 15 alphabet soup regulators. The Fed, the SEC, the FDIC, the OCC, state banking regulators, state insurance regulators, all the way on, the Treasury Department, all the way on down the line to regulate and regulate and regulate and regulate the current financial system. Because it's inherently unstable. It blows up all the time. JP Morgan has 1,200 people that just have a job regulating JP Morgan. And they provide office space for 1,200 regulators to look at their books every single day. But yet they had the London whale problem. Yet they continually have problems all over the place. Wells Fargo has hundreds of people whose job is to do nothing but regulate Wells Fargo. The day we're talking, Wells Fargo, the Consumer Protection Board, just slapped them with a $3.7 billion fine for mistreating customers. You got 800 people whose job it is to make sure you don't mistreat customers who are outside government regulators, and they still pulled it off. The system is so opaque. The system is so unstable. A new system, DeFi. Now, the one thing I'll say nice about DeFi, if you look at the main protocols on the Ethereum network, Curve, Uniswap, Aave, MakerDAO, and the like, what is the one thing about those protocols that we have found in the last year? They just work. They don't give you any problems. You might not like the price because the price is falling, but they don't blow up. They don't have people that have to go to jail because they were lying to you. And so that is what the promise of DeFi is. Of course, Jamie Dimon hates it because what I'm saying is we're going to turn your bank into an app and it's going to be run by 12 regulators. Um, you may not like that because that's what DeFi ultimately winds up being at that point. It's just an app to exchange, borrow, and lend against a sound decentralized piece of money. We need to get back to that. We need to stop with the casino stuff. And we're going to. We're going to wipe everybody out that wants to play this stuff as a casino. If you're a degen, your days are numbered. Because if you haven't been killed off, you will be killed off. And then we'll get back to why are we here? What is the purpose? And we'll rebuild it from that. And so, yeah, I'm very bullish on the long-term prospects of it, but I still think we're not quite all the way through the pain. We're mostly through the pain, but there's more to come. That's interesting. Yeah. So I'm definitely hearing definitely bullish on the long-term prospects of um, crypto, the promise of DeFi. Do you, just like on the um, FTX SBF um, fiasco, how big of a setback do you think this is? Like, does this, like, do you see it as like a major setback where, you know, you won't see new new institutions come into the, like I would love to kind of hear like your thoughts. How are you thinking of it as a setback to the space? Because it does it's not going to kill it per se. I'm not hearing that from you. No, it's not going to kill it. It's not going to make it easy. Look, you know, like I said, let me go back to something I said a minute ago. Today, 
Wells Fargo got a $3.7 million billion, would billion, it be? Yeah. billion dollar fine for mistreating customers with the scandal. If, for those of you not familiar with the scandal, Wells Fargo had bad incentives, right? They used to pay their bankers for the amount of accounts, the accounts that they opened. And people would go into their system and they'd say, Jim Bianco, okay, I'm going to open a credit card for him. I'm going to open another savings account for him. I'm going to open a checking account for him. And they didn't know that they were doing that. And the banker got paid because he said, look at how many savings accounts, credit card accounts, checking accounts we've reopened for customers. Millions of these things were open. Uh, and so now they got tagged with a 3.7, they got, they got fined. The, the old chairman had to resign. They had to restructure. And now they got hit with a $3.7 billion fine. Is anybody saying, is, is, is um, Brad Sherman uh, coming out and saying, you know, maybe we should do away with the banking system. Banking system is too is too dangerous. It hurts people. Maybe we should get rid of this. No, but with the, the when when the same thing happens with FTX, we say it's Brad Sherman, who's a congressman from California on the House Financial Services Committee and probably the most anti-crypto person out there, is saying this is a sign that we should ban crypto from anybody in the United States from owning it. Brad, how about ban anybody from the United States from using a commercial bank after what happened with Wells Fargo? So my point is, obviously, that's laughable with Wells Fargo. But why is it any less laughable with crypto? It goes to crypto can't screw up. The banking system can screw up. And therefore, we just we find the bad anchors. When Archegos with too much leverage, the hedge fund that blew up earlier this year, did anybody say, that's it, we need to ban all the hedge funds because one of them blew up? But when FTX blows up, we say, no, nah, we got to we got to ban everybody from owning crypto. So, yes, it is a problem because of the perceptions of crypto. And yes, you're relying on a bunch of congressmen that um, don't understand crypto. As I've said, if I was king for five seconds, I would say I'm going to get rid of the age requirement to um, be a congressman or a senator or president. And I'm going to give an app requirement. Here, here's a smartphone. You got three minutes to download an app and buy something. If you can't do that, you're not qualified to be in Congress. Most of them can't. They don't even know what the word app means. And so the, I get it. That's what you're dealing with with a lot of these people right now. But eventually these old dinosaurs will die off and the new, new pro, a generation will come that understands it right now. So crypto can't screw up. The banking system can screw up. The hedge fund industry can screw up. The Fed, as we talked about earlier, can screw up. And no one says we got to end the Fed because they let inflation get out of the uh, genie, get out of the bottle. But when FTX blows up, we get people say, no, no, we have to ban Americans from owning crypto. So this is going to be a fight that the industry needs to take. And the answer is going to be that you can't say, look, we need to make it we need to make it OK for DGENs to be DGENs. We need to make the case that there is a reason that we need sound, decentralized money and a financial system for it. Because, and the argument you will have to give them is, if we don't do it, somebody else will. It's kind of like the Uber argument. People showed the taxicab companies these apps and said, you should do this. And the taxicab company said, uh, I like my old business model. Fine. Then a company named Uber came around and took everything away from you. If you don't disrupt yourself, you risk losing everything. And that's the argument that should be made to Congress. DeFi and cryptocurrencies are coming. 
and you can let Nigeria become the next financial center. If you think uh, that's laughable, look at Hong Kong. You know, it's it's not very big and it is a major financial center. Uh, so you're going to open the door to letting somebody take it away from us or you have to admit it's inevitable and disrupt yourself um, right now. And this is where I think we need to have these conversations. And we're trying, uh, but it's very difficult. It's unfortunate that what SBF and FTX did is old-fashioned theft and fraud. It is as old as time what they did. It really didn't have a whole lot to do with crypto. It's just they did it in the crypto space. And so therefore, we're going to tar crypto with it largely out of ignorance because a lot of people don't understand what crypto is. And somehow they think that it has to do with crypto as opposed to he's just another bad actor that like many other bad actors that we've seen. And he's using the same thing. He's he's taking customer money and doing illegal things with them. John Corzine, who was the governor of New Jersey and a former head of Goldman Sachs, yep. did the same thing with MF Global in 2011. Lost his job. People lost money. Lost, not to the extent that FDX did, but he did the same thing. So this is not like this is new, what we've seen. Yeah, we've seen this uh, movie before. Um, just to kind of round out this conversation, thank you again. I, everything you're saying, so interesting, um, so informative. You mentioned a book. Um, I'm going to download it. Uh, the Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest uh, by Edward Chancellor. What are you reading um, around the holidays? Do you have any good book recommendations for the folks out there watching and listening? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I just finished uh, the Price of Time. That's a, a really good book. Um, before that, um, I I finished Nick Timoros's book. You know, everybody knows him as the the Fed leaker guy, but he wrote an excellent book about what the Fed did during the uh, pandemic called Trillion Dollar Bailout. Uh, I thought that that was a a, a really good book. Um, what else am I reading um, um, right now? I've got to look at my shelf here. Um, uh, oh, The Lords of Easy Money is another book. So I'm I'm usually I'm reading books about the recent history, like post 08 forward financial system, um, because I want to make sure that I understand what has recently happened as well uh, as you can. Uh, and if you um, if you don't like any of those book recommendations, Sly Stallone and Tulsa King, I think is great. So, you know, it's on the Paramount Network. So you could go with that one as there well, too. Go. Well, Jim, I always love having you on this show. Um, I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Do you want to tell folks where they can find your research, follow you on social media, connect with you? Yeah. So uh, I run and founded Bianco Research. April will be my 25th year. And um, uh, and we are in, uh, affiliated with a brokerage firm, a fixed income brokerage firm called Arbor Research and Trading out of the Chicago area. I'm in the Chicago area too. Uh, and we provide institutional research for macro and fixed income clients. And so, yeah, the code word there is it's kind of a pricey professional product. But to augment that, I do try and put a lot of stuff on social media. So, you know, to try and explain things to people. So you can follow me on Bianco Research or my LinkedIn page at Jim Bianco. You always request a free trial of our stuff to see what's behind um, the password uh, as well, too. Uh, the one caveat I will give you, and I know Pomp and you have the same problem, too. When you're involved in, this, in the financial space or the crypto space, you get a lot of scammers that uh, have your account. There's dozens of them that have me. 
There's probably dozens of them that have you. So make sure that you look for the account that's got the blue check mark with lots of, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. Don't follow me if it says that I got 85 followers with no blue check mark. That's a scammer. I will never ask you for money in a DM. So if that if 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 I do, that's not me. I'm hearing more and more stories about that on social media. I hope Elon fixes it someday. But I always it just infuriates me that that's happening under my name and likeness. And I always try to make that warning to people when you follow somebody. Make sure you're following the right person. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a long time for these networks to get rid of these accounts. It's like, come on. Just like if someone, many people are reporting, yeah. get rid of them. Um, Jim Bianco, found, founder and president of Bianco Research. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season uh, with your family. Take care. And thanks again. Thank you. And happy holidays to everybody.